just the name of the Canadian Revenue Agency might strike fear in the hearts of certain tax executives, and they're by no means an easygoing jurisdiction. But as with so much of life, let alone international tax, it's a little bit more complicated than that. The CRA is not the IRS, as Canada is a very different country from the United States, something you'll hear a few times on today's show. Also, there's a bureaucracy, of course, and it's actually one you want to lean into because the CRA is armed to the teeth with technology to the point where they know 100% what they're looking for before they even get started on an audit. But all is not lost. There are tricks to keeping up with this tax authority, but you'll just have to tune into the rest of the show to find out. Hello, everyone. My name is Matthew DeMello, the host of the Fiona Show, Cross Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And today we're joined by John Nowaselski, a tax consultant with the ABC Group who has more than 12 years experience at the CRA, here to share the insight from that experience with all of you. In just a quick note, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're going to plant three CPE code words throughout the show. Send all three code words to all one word, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we will send you your certificate. Just that easy. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. COVID, COVID, COVID. The world may be obsessed with the coronavirus, and rightly so, but do you ever give just a little thought to pre-pandemic endeavors? Like, I don't know, say the OECD's progress on international tax reform? Well, good news, we have an update. In a bulletin released after their July 18th virtual meeting, the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors said that they are still committed to their end-of-year deadline in terms of resolving questions left by the Pillar 1 in Pillar 2 proposals. Quick recap, Pillar 1's reform would reallocate profits to jurisdictions where customers reside, and Pillar 2 would impose a global minimum tax on MNE group income. Now it's all coming back to you, right? Next up, the inclusive framework has to approve blueprints, which flush out the details of the proposals. So far, it looks like the definition of amount A has been refined in the blueprint for Pillar 1, but the overall proposal still requires some simplification. As for Pillar 2, discussions are still underway, but for now, it seems there's been progress on the definitions of the tax base, permanent adjustments, and covered taxes. I mean, that's not a vaccine or anything, but it's something. Speaking of the coronavirus, no doubt it will make 2020 transfer pricing more than a little tricky. But fortunately, some jurisdictions are trying to help pave the way with guidance. Take Australia, for example. Australia's JobKeeper program offers financial assistance to Australian companies affected by the pandemic. But make no mistake, it's Australian companies and entities that should benefit from their government's generosity. So should the payments result in changes to transfer prices paid or received, by the Australian entity and the JobKeeper financial assistance ends up benefiting offshore companies, you can bet the Australian tax authority will have something to say about it. According to the ATO, the JobKeeper assistance should be adjusted out of the transfer pricing analysis altogether. Of course, that's easier said than done. I mean, what if a comparable company is also receiving the JobKeeper benefit? Or what if a foreign comparable is getting government assistance from another jurisdiction? How can you appropriately benchmark then? And you thought benchmarking was complicated before. 
For now, the ATO recommends that you document arm's length pricing on a contemporaneous basis and that you continue to update as new information becomes available. Not the most revolutionary advice you've received, I'm sure, but effective all the same. Everyone seems to be wondering what some of the immediate effects of the pandemic will be once the virus, fingers crossed, quiets down. And while we can't predict the whole future, it's safe to say tax executives can look forward to one definite, more desk audits. And by that, we mean digital scrutiny. Let's face it, jurisdictions may be putting audits on hold for now, but eventually they'll come looking for revenue lost to the pandemic. And a surefire way to do that is to audit MNEs. And given our social distancing restraints, digital audits make a whole lot of sense. More good news, you can also expect to see more audits take place overall and an increase in the severity of them as well. What can you do? Let's just say good documentation and a little cooperation promise to go a long way. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp john thank you so much for being with us tell us a little bit about where you're based and what's happening in terms of covid19 there well I, i'm based out of the toronto canada region specifically mississauga our uh, covid situation is largely under control when you compare it to the U.S. Ontario is probably the same size, similar size to, to Florida, if you like. And we're in and around 100 new cases a day. So put that in perspective to what you know down there. We freak out a little if it gets up to 150. We kind of celebrate if it gets down to 50. <laughs> compared to a lot of most places in the world, we're very good. The one thing is they just started reopening various things. We reopened gyms and eating inside restaurants effective today wow wow so you're you're getting started in a brand new post quote-unquote normal world taking a step back from there in your own career how did you get into transfer pricing well i worked for cra at that point in time i was a large case manager when, you, when you're dealing with a large case in canada virtually everyone is international and virtually everyone has transfer pricing in fact which which most interested in canada and, and this is kind of scary to a lot of people but if you go back in in the in the in the 80s and 90s german companies J japanese company and companies of those in that area never paid any tax in canada they transfer pricing they just literally never paid tax in canada so suddenly uh, other 
nationalities such as the U.S. picked up on that. And so they said, well, they can do it. So can we. So suddenly our corporations were paying tax and, and something had to be done. And clearly it was transfer pricing that was dictating what was happening. Right, right. So in the grand scheme of things, I know Canada has a reputation, at least in our offices, of being very difficult. But from that larger context, it's relatively recent. Yes, yes. It's interesting that you say that. Is that I, I would suggest to you that Canada is so much advanced electronically, and so they're able to make much more effective positions and much more reasonable analysis than most countries in the world. And as such, they, they literally make many more proposals in, in, in this area. And I guess and nobody likes to have proposals, but once you get proposals, you know, you get a reputation, hey, you know, they're difficult to deal with. Now, having said that, the other thing to understand is you hit on was Canada, especially in the late 90s, was new to transfer pricing. And what they did is literally through every type of transfer pricing adjustment out there, on the wall, hoping it's just just trying to find out what stuck, but that was back in the '90s, and over 20 years from then, they're not in that same phase anymore. Of course, that's a that's a lifetime considering the the grander history of of transfer pricing, especially considering the more recent attention it's gotten from even realms outside of tax departments. But in speaking of, I know you're an executive at the ABC Group. How big is your tax department, and how much staff is dedicated to transfer pricing? I'm part of a consulting company which provides service to ABC. ABC itself outsourced all its tax. So the company that I'm, organization I'm with has about five or six people that, that spend some time on ABCM Matters. Now, having said that, my boss and I spend the, the vast majority of our time. But what's interesting for me is that when I say my boss, right, that's, that's a very hard one because for years and years and years, he, he reported to me. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have a really unique relationship. <laughs> Unique is a very well chosen and diplomatic word. I'm kidding. I'm teasing you. Anyway, anyway, do you feel like companies are feeling that transfer pricing has grown in importance over that time? Clearly in Canada, there's been a real transfer of ownership of, of, of major corporations out of Canada. So there's virtually no, other than banks, virtually no big companies in Canada are Canadian anymore. So everything is, is transfer pricing. Everything is coming charges coming from international. It is such a grand scale compared to other other countries. Right, right. Let's start with the basics. Is Canada a member of the OECD? Yes, yeah. It's, it's been part of the OECD, like basically from the beginning. And that's usually the way Canada operates. And have you seen the CRA's interest in transfer pricing grow over the years? Well, it, it's grown as the amount of transactions and everything have grown. And clearly, as the economy grows, it grows. And clearly, it's the way to limit your taxes most effectively. I, I would suggest about two years ago, this was front page news in Canada. Continually, every day, there was front page news on transfer pricing. And even outside of the, the financial papers, those are the regular papers. That's front page news. Yes, all papers, financial, regular papers. It was all the news agencies that have broke stories. And, and it was a big concern that all large corporations were not paying their fair share tax. And it was all due to transfer pricing or, or cross-border transactions. So, John, if I could ask, 
is transfer pricing a well-known profession in Canada? For instance, if you told anybody you were in transfer pricing, not just international tax, would they know what you meant? Instantly. Wow. Also, you have to understand, the vast majority of companies operating in the U.S. are American. Right. 2% of the companies in Canada are Canadian. So it's all transfer pricing. (laughs) It's all transfer pricing. Very, very interesting and maybe even foreboding something in the States. I know uh, uh, Mimi in our office, uh, Chief Economist Mimi Song, uh, brings up a time. I still have yet to fact check her on this and actually watch the State of the Union. But she swears, I think it was the second to last Obama State of the Union or the last one mentioned transfer pricing outright. And I was like, no way. And I I, I, I have yet to d- double fact check this, her on this it. Is, this is, I mean, obviously right now we're in, we're in strange times. We but are. <laughs> maybe the last, I, I'm going to say maybe for the last year, it, it, it's it's kind of faded a bit. But uh, trust me, it was it was the top stories in the, in the newspaper. All the the CBC is our main news agency, and all the pay, all the major papers all did investigative series on transfer pricing. Right, right. Well, on that note, has Canada adopted BEPS Action 13? They, they have done the uh, country by country reporting. I think that's what you're referring to. Right. And, and what's very interesting, and, you, you, and I, I, it's interesting you brought this up, but you didn't bring up the thing that's of most interest to, to, to Canadians, is that Canada has a, their tax returns and everything else are very electronic, very functional and everything else. So they actually have a schedule, which, which rolls over from year to year for country by country reporting. Um, there's been some changes, such as the difference, changing in currencies and everything else. But the, but but the actual form itself has been in place since 2016. What's interesting is that they have it, and it's fully inclusive. It covers every fa- every facet of the BEPS Action 13. Yet when it's provided to other jurisdictions, everybody goes, "What is that?" And and that's because it's so efficient. It's just laid out, and they go, "Well, we were expecting this massive." They have it laid out, fill out fill in the boxes. So just to clarify, what you're basically talking about is a form that has always done the job of the CBCR report according to the BEPS Action 13 standard. But famously, Canada actually doesn't require a local nor master file, correct? Well, to be, to be honest, most people always adopted the master and local. That, that, that approach has, all, has, has been largely used in Canada day one but it's not explicitly required specifically required no got it but it's part of the culture is what you're saying i've been on an industry now for uh, over 20 years and i've done master and local everywhere i've been right but it just makes things easier because then then when you go to the next jurisdiction you start off with the master and just do the local I wonder what that says about the relationship between companies and the CRA that they know to it just means the this you're you're putting your best foot forward in that case if you supply these documents anyway. Yes, I think there's a better relationship until the relationship goes sour, of course. Of course. But usually there's a, there's this belief that, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong, so here you go. Interesting. So giving them more in that case, just because in some context, we, we, we uh, sometimes tell folks, you know, don't give them more than what they're asking for. But that's interesting that that's part of so many Canadian business relationships with the CRA. It's a Canadian philosophy too, though. It really is. That's the way, that's the difference in the philosophy. Um, sure. It gets you in trouble sometimes. You give too much. 
there's a belief that if you overwhelm them with information, they'll go away quickly. Very important to remember if you're doing uh, transfer pricing in Canada. Tell us about uh, Canadians' own transfer pricing documentation requirements. Again, there's contemporaneous documentation, and it's probably a universal term. They obviously want you to give the, the org chart. They they want to know the like the master file requirements. They want to see the consolidated financials. They want to see the local financials. They want they, they very much want to see functional analysis spelled out. What is done where for each different type of transaction. And that's the other thing that's really, really unique in Canada, I guess, is it's transactional based. It doesn't want you to say, oh, for this type of transaction, this is the margin. This is what it wants you to analyze each and every transaction. That flavor has to be in the documentation. And just to spell this out for our listeners, how does that affect uh, functional analysis at the at the end of the day as compared to where you document in other countries? The functional analysis route, I think it works everywhere because everybody wants to know what risks, what functions performed in relation to a specific transaction in what jurisdiction. It very much depends upon who's taking the risks, who has the intangibles, who's developing versus just laying back and facilitating a transaction. It, it is very, very risk-based. And just taking a very quick break to give you your first CPE code word, and that word is maple, as in maple leaves, the symbol of Canada. So symbolic, of course, it's on their flag, so that one should be pretty easy. And just for the CRA's focus on transactions, how does that impact methodology? It makes the documentation much more cumbersome because instead of saying the sales of this raw material, now you have to show each and every transaction. It increases the volume of what needs to be presented. Thereby increasing the burden for multinationals. Yes, of course, that's not always, that's not in the report, but you've got to have data files. Your data files are much more voluminous in Canada. And does that mean the CRA prefers one methodology over another? Oh, it very much ranks. It ranks all the methodologies. It, it gives the number one status to the cup. Then, then the, res, the resale minus and cost plus, those two are very are, are next. The transactional methods um, gives much less priority. Having said that, transfer pricing, when it comes to do an audit, is always a negotiation process. And I, and I bring this up for one obvious reason. When negotiating, what always comes up is the profit split. So you have to have the profit split sitting there. It's nowhere mentioned as one of the methodologies. But in negotiating it, anything with CRA, CRA, it is always the most important part of the negotiation. So, it, you know, most disputes are going to come down to a negotiation. And no matter what methodology you started with, it's going to come down to have a profit split ready because they're going to ask for it. That's what you're saying. Yeah, they're not going to ask for it. Um, they're going to be doing it. Oh, okay. And so, you, so, so I'm going to suggest it's always better that you do it rather than they do. It. <laughs> okay. As always, beat them to the punch. Uh, you can put your own, you can put your own spins on things when you do it. <laughs> it's still, uh, what if a profit split doesn't portray you in the best light or doesn't get you the greatest possible r return? You're saying do the profit split regardless. You can always do profit split. Because you always know what each side of the transaction makes. And I'll give you an example. I'm going to say the biggest error I see in transfer pricing is because they don't do a profit split. 
And I'll use an example, and, and I've seen this time after time, say the Canadian company is selling to an American company. And, and say between the two of them, um, the selling price is, ends up, the, the third party is $100, and the ultimate cost all combined is 90 They make $10, okay? If you don't do a profit split, if you split it such that Canada makes $12 and, and the U.S. loses $2, that will never work. You have to have the split. So if it's 10 to be made, I don't care what, how you do it, but they both better be profitable. Same goes if you have losses on both sides of the transaction. They got to split the losses. In the end, you're going to want to have this audit offset in, in the other jurisdiction so you don't have double taxation. So you, you, don't, you don't want to end up being taxed on more than 100%. Mm. And I don't think you'd mind if it's less, but... Let's talk about benchmarks. Does Canada prefer local benchmarks? Well, I, I think most, most prefer local benchmarks, but I think more important than that is identifying which organization is the tested party. And quite often what Canada li- is, likes to believe is, is the, the least complex party is the tested party. In that case, it, it could be the local or it could be the other one. Um, it's always easiest to test the least complex company. Then you do the benchmarking in whatever jurisdiction that's in. I'm only wondering in the grand scheme of technology, how you would even try to filter that. I know for us, local benchmarking is a cinch, but to try to apply it uh, on a simple basis, you're gonna need some finesse there. You're you're correct when you said finesse there. So whatever benchmark you wanna use, you make that the least complex party in your presentation. Now around our offices, Canada has a peculiar reputation Uh, not only for the reasons that we've already listed, but also because comparables are really hard to find in Canada. Why is that? I'm going to suggest it comes back to what we said earlier, is that there's very few Canadian companies, public companies. And again, that's where the comps come from, from the public companies. And so effectively, most comps, you know, public companies and most public companies are not Canadian. And does Canada require multi-year or single-year testing? Though it says that it's okay with multi-year, it is very obvious that it believes in single-year testing. They think year-over-year changes blemish a lot of things. So so Canada prefers single-year testing. For those listeners less familiar with the CRA, would you say that handing in multi-year testing would end up a red flag? No, no, because most people, even knowing that, they usually send in multi-year because because you don't get you usually don't do uh, benchmarking every year, right? You use it for a, a number of years. But just to know how how lenient they are on that front, or how much that would that would come up, that just becomes a negotiating item. Interesting. Everything works back to negotiation. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And just to briefly interrupt with our second CPE code word, and that code word is Montreal. I'm going to be honest with you. I just chose that CPE code word because the music scene in Montreal has been historically amazing. How likely are you to get audited by the CRA for transfer pricing? Problem is, there's only limited resources, right? There's only there's only so many resources that can that can be assigned to this. I'm going to suggest to you that right now, in the current environment, the next year or so, very unlikely to be audited. And the reason I say that is because it'll it'll especially in Canada, there's been a huge amount of wage subsidy. Like, I'm going to say maybe a hundred times more wage subsidy in Canada than there is in the U.S. The, the huge focus of all audits going forward in the next year or two will be wage subsidy. And so transfer pricing temporarily will be suspended. Which industries have to be particularly concerned about transfer pricing audits? Well, in Canada, for whatever reason, pharmaceuticals always, always are in the news. And the active ingredients and the raw materials, they're always challenging those comparisons. Financial services, again, because we have a lot of Canadian banks, that's always being looked at. And I would say third, third place would be then manufacturing. And again, recognizing that the manufacturing is such that in Canada, we, we effectively are only distributors because the manufacturing has left Canada than other places. And when we talk to clients about transfer pricing, they all seem to have concerns about transfer pricing in Canada. What is the most challenging part of dealing with the CRA in terms of transfer pricing? I know this largely because of the fact that I used to work with them, is, is, is getting to the right person to deal with. If you're having any difficult, I mean, obviously the best thing to do is come to an agreement with the otter. But I think very quickly, if you, if you can't come to a very quick agreement, you shouldn't waste any time with the auditor. You want to escalate it up to the local office, but even faster to head office. They're much more reasonable to deal with because that's where the economist is. The economists are never at the local office level. And just to interrupt very quickly for our third and final CPE code word, and that code word is manners, as in, I guess there are worse national stereotypes than being a population full of people who know their manners. So what is it about the hierarchy between the high and low offices that makes the high offices easier to work with for MEs? Negotiation is based on, on more on fact pattern because these people are experienced transfer pricing people. At the local office, they aren't as skilled. You have to, again, recognize that local offices are evaluated on their adjustments. The local offices are, will always want the highest possible adjustment. Head office is not evaluated on adjustments. So it's it, it doesn't have the same motivation, if you like. And in your time inside and out of the CRA, have you seen the agency invest oh, yes. in high and low offices? I would suggest the last 15 years, transfer pricing has been the number one place where they've, they've, they've invested in, in training and additional staff, because that's where the highest recoveries are. Now, given what you were saying before about how kind of transfer pricing is on hold with all things COVID, do you have any 
anticipation of what would happen to all those folks that were just hired? I, I think they're going to be cross-trained. They're going to be looking at the, I say, the wage subsidy. Just to, to understand, in, in the U.S., you only have wage subsidies where the, the people aren't working or, or you're hiring. In Canada, they're, they're subsidizing basically 75% of all salaries as long as the revenues have gone down 30%. So that there was no thought of these are only for people that hung on and, and would otherwise would let go. It's 75% of all wages. And so there's massive, massive amounts. Um, I'll, I'll put it in perspective. We have the same amount of employees in, in Canada, in the U.S., in ABC. We've got over $30 million in subsidy from Canada. We'll probably end up with less than $1.5 million in the U.S. Uh, same amount of people, same operations, everything's the same. So the subsidy in Canada is $30 million versus $1.5 million. And so... That's where they're going to spend the time because there's going to be a lot of abuse. I mean, but right now, and you put in your subsidy request today, you get the money in your bank tomorrow. They sent it out fast, they're going to check. And and, and our prime minister has actually said, if you've committed any sort of fraud, they're going to penalize to the maximum of the law. And they will. When, when When the prime minister made that, the very next day, there was 230,000 applications withdrawn. Wow. That's incredible. I'm saying they've given out so much money. It's going to be a priority. It's going to be short-lived, but that's going to be the priority, clearly. A curious question here. Do you think anybody fears the Canadian Revenue Agency? I don't think anybody likes to uh, be audited. Having said that, I'll put it in perspective. I've been audited. I've been in audits with the IRS and Canada. In the IRS, I'm always sitting there, glued to and looking at that gun in the holster. No auditor in Canada has a gun. So, so I'm saying this: Who is feared more? So the fear factor of the IRS is a hundred times fold more than Canada for that reason alone. For the first half hour of those discussions, I'm just looking at the gun. I say, I've been part of many, many odds, and I must admit, the most scared I am is when I'm dealing with the IRS. <laughs> part of my background, I was a electronic IT auditing area as well. Back in the early 90s, computers just became out. Canada is at the state of the art in all electronic and, and, and data auditing. So they are so much more sophisticated. Their auditing is done off-site through electronics as opposed to on-site. And so that makes a huge difference in the audit. You're dealing with a much, much higher level audit. And a more sophisticated one at that. Than most other countries. And, and, and I know because even back then, partly what I, what I did is, is I went around the world trying to give them insight into the computer use by CRA. And CRA has just continually moved ahead in that field. So the problem with CRA is when they come in, they've already got something in their mind. They've already got it. They send their EDP people in, downloaded of all your data files, and they've already got something in their mind before they start. They already know, in essence, what they're looking for at that point. Already know. And so, and so they're able to do a much higher level screening. And they have a pretty good idea of whether or not they're going to find it. Yes. So, so it's critical to know what they're looking for before you start. Because one of the things that's usually done, and it's, it's a te- technique, is they ask a question, they know the answer, and they want to find out what you say. Credibility is worth so much. If you can create credibility 
very, and you can do it very quickly, you can be much more successful in your negotiation. Transfer pricing is all about negotiating. So they have the answers. You're just trying to say the right thing, given that they know that. And I think you, you, you didn't ask the question, but but uh, um, given this level, they have the what do they call they call them uh, hidden comparables or uh, secret comparables. Comparables in their mind before they even look at your number, look at your transfer pricing support. They do exist. And again, if you think about it, it, it it's created because. When, when, when you're getting comparables off your databases, they're only public. Their comparables are both public and private, everyone. And so they have a much greater depth to, the, to what they can use as comparables. Turning back to our discussion, the Cameco case is probably one of the biggest headlines in at least transfer pricing uh, that has come from the CRA of late. The Cameco case didn't go the way of the CRA. What message did the court send to the CRA in terms of transfer pricing with that ruling? I guess the, big, the biggest message is that they pushed the idea that it's form not substance that's of greatest importance. CRA has always said, well, it's always substance over form. No, the courts basically said, if they got agreements, and those might not be the most logical, but they have agreements in place that make some sort of sense, but they have agreements, you can't recharacterize those agreements. And CRA always felt that they could say, you know what, that doesn't make sense. The most logical way is to do this. We're going to recharacterize your transaction. The courts basically, in that case, said, no, form takes, takes precedence over, over the substance. So what message does that send to MNEs? That, that sends them that having the proper agreements and documentation in place is very critical. If you have something there in place and documentation that, that's as logical, the courts are going to go with that. And CRA will have a hard time overturning it. So, so the critical thing is, is that you must have effective documentation. The interesting thing about that case as compared to perhaps how other tax authorities operate in other jurisdictions is that the CRA really stuck to this case through the numerous appeals, the follow-ups, even going as far as to re-interviewing Cameco employees to reinforce their position. This is where, where I think a lot of people miss it, is CRA's position and everything else, nobody's disagreeing, not even the lawyers, nobody, that they're taking the best position. With what they assessed is the most reasonable, logical, and everything else. And so CRA thought, well, it's all about substance. If we got the right case, we don't care about the form. We don't care about the documentation. Well, the court said, we don't, we don't care what's the right answer. We care about the process. And that's really, it was shocking because, because that's what CRA continually kept thinking. Well, if we got the, if we got the right position in everything else, who cares about anything else? Well, the courts basically straightened them out on that. On that. I can't believe that the, the courts went that way, but I can see because I've, I've talked to a number of judges and, and different things. They're all form-based. That's the way they think. They always want to review forms and documentations they want to read the, they don't want to hear subjective positions they're very objective minded hey there's an agreement here is it, is it a legal agreement is it a binding agreement yes well, why should i change it how can i change that's what the, the judges say 
That's what he said in that case. Right. So in a way, do you feel like this signals some sort of change in how the CRA operates and how they'll be doing things? Because even Cameco got behind and recommended that the CRA change its policies if it wanted to pursue transactions in precisely this manner. I think what CRA is doing and we're going to do, I don't know, if, I honestly don't even know if they've done it. They're going to change the law. They're going to change the law to support them. And they'll come back with exactly the same position. But now they'll have the law. The law. And before it was it's subject to the, the judges to make that ruling. They're going to change the law to support what they wanted. They lost, and they can't. Jurisprudence can't be changed. The law can be changed, and that's what that's what CRA usually does when they lose. So, what becomes the biggest challenge in dealing with the CRA? Identif identifying who you need to negotiate with. And how do you end up finding the right person to negotiate with? Well, again, if you understand that the local guy is motivated by, by change, and if he's not willing, if, he, if he's not even showing any signs of negotiation, um, you can't waste time with him. The more time they put on the file, the less likely they're going to change. Recovery per hour is the number one measurement for taxation office. From your experience at the CRA, what do you think helped you most during your time as a transfer pricing executive? I know how to negotiate. I, I know who to negotiate with. Sometimes I have to negotiate on, with, through competent authority on, on both parties. I, I know technically you're not supposed to be able to, to get to tech competent authority on both parties, and though that's what I have to do, and I've, had, I've gotten in the room while the two competent authorities were negotiating. That is so critical. If, if you know what you need to do, especially when talking about big, big dollars. You don't do this if it's, if it's not big dollars. So you must really feel as though your experience at the CRA has given you a tremendous advantage as a transfer pricing executive. It gave me insight in, in, into what and who does what. Do you feel as though other transfer pricing executives also have that insight, whether or not they've had experience at the CRA? I think you'll, you'll find there's very few. Having said that, a lot of big eight firms have gone after CRA's transfer pricing people from head office, and they've hired a number of them. And I think that that is very, very helpful for them. But I'm saying the person who didn't come up through CRA really, really doesn't have that insight. Well, that sounds like invaluable career experience to me. I think most transfer pricing executives listening to this program would agree that tax authorities have their own regulations that they need to abide by, and everybody knows what they are, but each agency has their own sort of hidden or secret or particular preferences that only those who have experience with those organizations can really understand for sure. So here, here's the difference between Canada and the U.S., is, is that we, the legislation is the legislation. We have uh, bulletins or, or uh, we, call, we call them informational circulars and, and like that. Those are not law. Those are just suggestions. Those are indications of what the, the CRA should do and everything else. But it doesn't, that is not what they need to do. They're just suggestions. And how should taxpayers heed those suggestions? If you follow the suggestions, you probably aren't going to get into that much trouble. But sometimes you need to take a risk. So 
in essence, really knowing the difference, but also knowing when. You're in a lot of trouble if you're arguing with the auditor over what you think the ICE interpretation circular means. All offices are evaluated on recovery per hour. And if the, 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 the offices with the greatest recovery, the, the senior management, first of all, there'll be more staff and the senior management will be a higher level and they'll be paid higher. So, so it's to everybody's advantage in, in each office to have the highest recovery per hour. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Thank you so much for being with us, John. We really appreciate having you. We come to the segment of the show that's my favorite. We call this the rapid fire, what we want to know. We put a transfer pricing expert in the hot seat, and today that expert is you. Question one, are you ready? Okay. <laughs> that's that's only question one. Question two, what's your biggest management challenge? Um, prioritizing work. I hear that. What mistakes do you think m and make again and again? Not doing a profit split analysis and seeing how the, the profit is, is slanted too high to one entity. That seems very, very specific to the CRA, which I really, really, really appreciate. Well, I, I, I worked with, with the IRS. The IRS do, are very much profit split oriented as well, whether, whether it's appreciated or not, it is. Very good to know, especially because we, we did the United States a couple of episodes ago um, and very good to underscore. Name one thing personally or professionally you think you've learned the hard way. How to treat people. <laughs> <laughs> and finish this sentence. If I weren't a transfer pricing executive, I'd be a blank. Golf pro. Ha <laughs> ha. Yes. People define success in different ways. What's your definition? Helping people. Who helps the most people is the, is the, is the most successful. It sounds like you've come a long way in this discipline. I, I, think, I think you get a lot of uh, gratitude and appreciation when, when you help people. Right. You... And you save organizations, you know, millions of dollars. Genuine service, no matter the compensation, just doing the job. Amen to that. Amen to that. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. And thank you all for listening. You can always subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, subscribe to our short form news podcast, The Fiona Show Hot Off the Press, filled with all the juicy little transfer pricing headlines in one less than 10 minute podcast, short enough for any commute once those become a thing again. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they're crazy enough to let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Our executive producer, Mary. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom writes our scripts. Stay safe and stay sane.